Good morning again. Uh, if you have your Bibles this week, I want to warn you, we're going to be a little bit all over the place. Today we're going to start uh, Advent. Uh, week one for, uh, for Advent is, is hope. So today we're going to talk about hope. Now normally, if you guys have been here for a while, I normally just stick to kind of one passage of Scripture and we work our way through that. Today we're going to bounce around a little bit because I want to tell, tell a story and just talk a little bit about the idea of hope. What does it mean to have hope? And so what we're going to do is we're going to go back into the Old Testament and find places, just a few where, where God intervenes in human history, causing his people to have great hope, and then we're going to tie that into the, the New Testament. So today we're going to begin in the book of Genesis. That's where we're going to start. This is right after Adam and Eve had, had sinned, had, had gone astray, right? Had done their own thing. God said, gave them one rule. You and I live with hundreds, if not thousands of rules every day. They had one rule. Don't eat from this tree, right? And they couldn't uh, abide by the one rule. And they ate. And right after they ate, as God's giving punishments out, this is what happens. And so, we, we pick the story up in verse 14 in Genesis chapter 3. It says this, So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, what, he, what had the serpent done? He had, he had tricked, he had manipulated Adam and Eve into choosing. Now Adam and Eve know, knew right and wrong, there's no excuse, right? But they were persuaded by the serpent to to go astray, to, to not follow what God asked them to do. And so this is God punishing the serpent, right? Who, of course, is a representation of Satan in the story. It says this, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. That part we're not worried about so much. It's the next part, verse 15. I will put enmity, strife, conflict, between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. The woman, of course, at this point is who? There's only one, Eve, right? Then there's this really weird thing that God says at the very end here, these last two lines. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Right? In this context, it's strange. You're like, what are you talking about, God? Now God, of course, doesn't see time the way we see time. God sees all of it, right? This is, as theologians have, have labeled it, the proto-evangelum, or the first mentioning of good news, the first mentioning that God has a plan to put this whole thing back together. So Adam and Eve had just sinned had just fallen short, had just gone astray, had just caused great strife and conflict for all humanity, and God already has a plan of how he's going to put this thing back together. Right? And that plan, the he is going to end up being Jesus, right? We'll talk about it as we go, but the he is actually a foreshadowing of the Messiah, of the, of the Savior, of the one who is to come, right? I showed you this, talking about hope, because in the midst of Sin, in the midst of a transgression, in the midst of, of doing the wrong thing, we find, as God's dealing out punishment, which we wouldn't describe normally as hope, that there's hope in verse 15. That God already has a way, already knows how he's going to put the thing back together, how he's going to make things right. So even in the midst of, of something terrible, something bad, God has a plan, right? How he's going to, to bring it all back together. Now we're going to jump from the book of Genesis chapter 3 to Genesis chapter 12, where we're going to see here that Abraham is, receives a call. He's Abram at this point, right? Abram's going to become Abraham. Anytime someone's name changes in the Bible, always is a clue for us to pay attention, right? And God's going to do something special through, through Abram. And so I wanted you to, to see this, right? This is the beginning of the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. God says this in Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. He says, I want you to leave everything you've ever known, 
I want you to follow me. I want you to trust me. I want you to go, right? In a time and place in the ancient world where people didn't generally leave their hometown, this is, is crazy, right? God's telling Abram, I want you to leave everything you've ever known, all the comforts of home, and I want you to go to a place, and I'm not even going to tell you what place it is. I just want you to go. I want you to trust me. I want you to have faith, right? And this is the promise that God gives to Abram if he chooses to go, if he accepts the mission, right? Verse 2, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And here's the hope. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now how in the world will all people on earth, how are you, how have you been blessed by Abraham? Well, Abraham's the beginning of a people, right? He's the start of a nation. And that nation is going to culminate, is leading to who? The Messiah. It's Jesus. If you look at the lineage of Jesus that's offered in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, who's there in the beginning? It's Abraham, right? It's Abraham. You see, in the midst of this, of this despair again, as Abraham has to leave everything he's ever known, God says, but if you do, if, you, if you're willing to go, if you're willing to take a little stress, if you're going to get out, outside of your comfort zone, if you're willing to do that, I'm going to use you to bless the entire world. You're seeing a, are you seeing a pattern here so far? That God takes the negative, the bad, the conflict, whatever it is, the uncomfortableness in this st- story, right, of leaving everything you've ever known, that's uncomfortable. And he takes that and he, and he says, yeah, it's, it's going to be hard for a while, but it's going to be really, really worth it in the end. It's going to be, it's going to be strife and hard and difficult. And, some, and as we live our lives, when are the times in our lives when we tend, we, we tend to grow the most? Is it the times that we're at peace, that we're comfortable and everything's going our way? No, we think we have it figured out, right? We don't grow in those time periods. But when, when the times in our lives when we grow... When our faith becomes deeper is when? Is when it all hits the fan. Is when things get difficult, right? When life is hard. So we find out what we're made of and we find out what we truly believe. And it's true for these people as well. Now we're going to jump from the book of Genesis to the book of Exodus. Because we were talking about the time of strife in Israelites' history. We're going to find it here. But I want to show you how God brings hope from even the most hopeless situations. Okay? So, the people of God, Abraham's descendants have landed themselves in Egypt. They got there because of Joseph's faithfulness, right? Joseph was faithful. His brothers weren't. His, they weren't great. They sold him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. There he becomes second in command because of his God-given ability to interpret dreams. He prepares Egypt for, for, great, for a great disaster, right, of seven years of famine. They, they survive it. They get through it. And then we begin the book of Exodus and the and the writer Moses is, is brilliant in his writings of this because verse 8 sets the scene for us, right? Joseph has helped the Egyptians greatly, but Joseph is dead now. In verse 8 it says this, Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Now this is a, a lesson on why we pay attention to history, right? We don't pay attention to what's happened in the past. We're often doomed to repeat it, right? Joseph had helped the nation of Egypt greatly and mightily, but a new king comes and Joseph doesn't mean anything to him. He could care less about Joseph or his family. 
And so look what he does. Verse 9 says this, Look, he said to his people, The Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The Israelites become slaves. Did you see something, though, in the midst of that? See, remember, today, this week, is about hope. Did you catch it? In verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. Like the the harder the Egyptians got on them, the more God blessed them, right? And they continued to grow and grow, and the Egyptians are literally trying to kill them, right? They're trying to work them to death. That's the Egyptians' goal. And what happens? It's not working so well, right? Pharaoh's plan isn't working all that great in verse 12. Why? Because those are God's people. Because they belong to him. And God says, you think you're going to do this, Pharaoh? Not going to happen. The story continues. Verse 15 says this, The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see the baby as a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. And the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? So the Pharaoh says, we've got to get rid of the boys. Why would you get rid of the boys if you're, fear, if you're worried about them? Why do you, would you kill just the boys and leave the girls? Boys grow up and become soldiers, warriors, right? And so if you're worried about these people joining in your enemies and fighting against you, you're going to kill the boys. Get rid of them. So the Pharaoh tells the, the Hebrew midwives, I want you to kill the boys. And the Hebrew midwives say, not going to happen, right? We would describe this as courage. So you would describe for the midwives because Scripture tells us that they feared God, right? That they, they believed God's word were good and true, and so they said, absolutely not. We will not do that, Pharaoh. And they're letting the boys live. And Pharaoh was not too crazy about that. The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then verse 22 happens. Pharaoh has to take it into his own hands. Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. So I want you to take the babies, and I want you to literally just throw them in the Nile, whether they drown or they're eaten by a doesn't matter. Get rid of them. You hear what's happening with Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh has left the realm of the sane and has gone to the realm of the insane, right? Anytime we kill children in societies in large, you should be worried about that, right? Which means we should probably look in the mirror maybe a little bit. Our society, possibly. The story continues in Exodus 3. That's not what that's supposed to say, by the way. That's the same as the last one. Let me grab you this. Exodus 3, 
7 through 10 says this. He's speaking to, to Moses, and he says this in Exodus 3. I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. You know that story, right? It's when Moses minding his own business and sees a burning bush, and God speaks to him from the burning bush, and God says to Moses, I have seen the misery of my people, and enough is enough. No more. How would we describe that? Right? The word's there. What's well, hope? The Israelites are literally trying to be, there's a genocide against the Israelite the Israelites, the little boys, and all of them, right? As the Pharaoh tries to literally work them to death, and God says, I cannot put up with this anymore. You notice that the verbs that are ascribed in that passage are all about God. God says, I have seen, I have heard, I am concerned, I have come to rescue. God says, I cannot be still anymore. I have to do The story continues in Exodus chapter 4. Moses finally says yes to God's call to go back to Egypt, and this is what happens when he says yes. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses, the thing I had just told you. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And I want you to listen to this, right? Remember, they're, they're slaves in Egypt. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery... They bowed down and worshipped. Why? Because they have hope. God has seen and God has heard and God is coming and we might just end up okay. And so they worship God because they hear that God cares, that God has heard, that God has seen and that God is coming. And so they bow down and they worship God because they have hope. People without hope are barely people. If we lose hope, what do we have? If we don't have hope, we're in trouble, right? If we don't have something to grasp onto, something to cling to. And I want you to think about these, these Israelites who are slaves. Slaves don't get days off. Slaves don't call in sick. Slaves don't get to go to the Oregon coast on vacation, right? Slaves work seven days a week, 14 to 16 hours, right? And I want you to think about that. If you have no hope of the future changing, what do you have as a slave? If you know that until the day I die, I will work for the, for the Egyptians, building bricks or working in the field, and this is the rest of my life, do you start running out of hope at some time? Right? You think to yourself, maybe I could escape, maybe I can make a run for it. Have you seen? Google, when you get home tonight, Google Egypt and tell me how great that land looks once you get past the Nile River. Where are you going to run to? Right? It's desert. You'll run out to the desert and you'll die. They have no hope. And they hear from Moses and Aaron that God cares for them. 
that God has seen what they're going through and God's going to do something about it. And they bow down and worship because for once, finally, they have a better future possible. They have hope. And man, does God come through, doesn't he? Now Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go and Pharaoh makes their work even harder. Right? The work is harder. Pharaoh's trying to crush them, trying to take any hope that they had from hearing that God cared about them and to crush it. And God's response to Pharaoh doing that is this in Exodus chapter 6. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. You notice that God says it's not Moses It's not Aaron. It's not anybody else. If there's a first-person pronoun used in that, what is it? It's I, right? God's saying to the Israelites, don't worry about anything else. It's I got this. The verbs he used, I will bring you out. I will free you. I will redeem you. Buy you back, right? I will take you as my own. I will be your God. I will bring you out. I will give it to you. God's saying, it's me. Trust me. I've got this. And as, as Pharaoh, who's the maybe the most powerful person in the world at this time, tries to crush the Israelites, God says it's not going to happen. God says, if there's anything you need to cling to right now, you cling to me because I will give you hope that a better future is possible than the one you find yourself in right now. And does God come through or does he come through? They go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Pharaoh says no. And God says, okay, if you want to play, bud, I'll play. If you want to stand toe-to-toe, let's stand toe-to-toe. And what does God do? He brings ten plagues on Egypt, right? The first is they take the Nile River, their water supply, their life, and he turns it into blood. The second one is they bring all kinds of frogs. It's a nuisance. Then gnats that get into the animals' nostrils, mouths, the peoples, and start suffocating them, right? Flies, livestock start dying off. Plagues of boils on animals and humans. Hail rains from the heavens, crushing all their crops. Plague of locusts, that's gross, Right? Anybody like locusts? No, no one likes locusts, right? And then the, the, the ninth plague is the plague of darkness. Every plague is an attack on the Egyptians' way of life and on their gods and goddesses, right? God says, Pharaoh, if you think you're God, come stand toe-to-toe to me and let's see who wins. And so far, the first nine rounds aren't going Pharaoh's way. And in this heavyweight bout, there's going to be one more round, isn't there? This one's going the ten rounds. And the knockout blow is offered in round number 10. They go back to them saying, Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh says, absolutely not. He, in his ignorance and his arrogance. And God says, okay, enough's enough. What we find here is the directions for the Israelites before as they prepare for the 10th plague to come. The 10th plague, of course, is going to be the killing of the firstborn. Whether it's animal or people. And Pharaoh's firstborn is going to be what? His his firstborn son is supposed to be whom? The next king. And God says, if you think you're king, and you think that son's going to be king, and you came to play, we'll play. 
So directions Moses gives to the people are this. It says, The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. On that night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. God says, I want you to sacrifice. I want you to take this lamb. I want you to kill it. I want you to eat it. I want you to kill it. I want you to take this blood. I want you to put it on the door door frames of your house, right? And that will be a sign to me that that it will pass over. As the angel of death comes, it will pass over your home. And it will only affect those homes who do not have blood on the doorposts. Of course, the Egyptians doorposts will have no blood. And as the angel of death comes through, the wailing and weeping is heard all around the land as the Egyptians realize that their firstborns are dead. And God said, Pharaoh, if you had all kinds of chances to repent, to turn around, and to let my people go, and you refused, and so here we are. Now what? Moses and Aaron go back to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, Go. Leave, right? But Moses' directions, I want you to look at these directions for just a moment. As we, I, I explained it to you a second ago, but I want you to see them in more detail because there's some great significance here. So Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on the bottom sides, excuse me, on both sides of the door frame. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. He will not permit the destroyer to enter your house and to strike you down. So the the Jewish holiday of Passover is established, right? When the angel of death passed over the Israelites and killed the Egyptian firstborns. It happens, and this is what Pharaoh says. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go. Worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and go, and also bless me. Pharaoh says, Enough's enough. I give up. Leave. And God has fought for his people and has freed them, giving them hope. Giving them hope. That tomorrow won't be like yesterday. And they are slaves no more. I want to bring you to another story that happens towards the other end of the Bible. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Jesus, the the day before he's crucified, gathers his disciples in an upper room and, and does what we just did, right? They're celebrating what Jewish holiday? Passover. What a coincidence. 
While they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said this, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He said to them, Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now they're celebrating Passover. They're eating the Passover, or what Jewish people refer to as the Seder meal, right? And the first Passover, God tells them to take some blood from a lamb and to put it on the door frames of their homes. And in this rendition of the Passover, Jesus takes that, that wine and says this, this is my blood, which is going to be poured out for many. Gospel of John, crucifixion of Jesus, John says this. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked the sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus says, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now Jesus, as he's on the cross, says, hey, I'm thirsty. And they just so happen to have a stalk of hyssop nearby. And they lift that to Jesus' lips. And in Exodus chapter 12, verse 22 Moses told the Israelites to use what plant to sprinkle that blood on their doorposts? You remember? What a coincidence, huh? The problem is our God doesn't deal with coincidence, does He? See, what Jesus is doing is He's the new Passover lamb, isn't He? When when John the Baptist saw Jesus approaching before His baptism in John chapter 1, it says this, The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward Him and said, Look, the Lamb of of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey. You know what time He enters Jerusalem? The time in which the Jewish people selected their lamb for Passover. What a coincidence, huh? What a coincidence. Jesus is born. The story of Jesus and birth. And do you remember as Jesus is a baby, there's a king who's trying to do something to baby Jesus. you remember who that king was? Herod, what's he trying to do? He's killing him. When Moses is born in Egypt, we read the story. What is Pharaoh trying to do to little boys? Well, he's trying to kill them. As if the Bible, as if God is trying to tell us something, isn't he? That Jesus, as he comes, is our Passover lamb. That Passover is just a picture, just a sign of something greater to come. When you want to talk about hope, which is the week one of Advent. God had this thing planned all along. And if you need hope, if you're searching for hope, if you are looking for someone who needs some hope, guess where hope is found? It's found in Jesus. You can look for it lots of other places. Those places will never deliver it. It can't be found there. We've all tried, haven't we? We've tried to find hope in stuff, in, in wealth, in just working harder, in approval, in 
a, a, a relationship, whatever it is. We've all gone down paths searching for something to fill the void, right? Searching for hope somewhere. It can't be found anywhere but in this Jesus. And God designed this whole thing all along so that hope can be found in Him. The Israelites were slaves, literally slaves in Egypt. Guess what you and I are? We're slaves to sin and death, the Apostle Paul tells us. There's only one who can free us from that slavery. There's only one who we can place our hope for true freedom. That one is the one who took on the cross. And and, And as Moses had directed the Israelites to put the blood on the door frames of their homes, Jesus shed blood on the cross takes away all of our sin. It takes away death. Death, burial, and resurrection is where true hope is found. It's found only in this Jesus. And this little Jesus didn't stay a little baby in a manger. That little Jesus is non-threatening, right? This little baby. He lived a perfect and sinless life. Moses' direction for the Israelites' people when they chose a lamb or a goat was it was to be a male without defect, right? And Jesus was without defect. Offered Himself up for us. Giving us hope. If you came here with no hope, or if you're running low on it, You better not leave here with no hope. It better be full. Because that same God who heard those cries of the Israelites over 3,500 years ago as they were slaves in Egypt is the same God who hears our cries today. When we cry out to God, His ears are always attentive to us. And what were the verbs He used In Exodus, I have seen, I have heard, I am concerned, I have come to rescue. I will bring you out, I will free you, I will redeem you, I will take you as my own. I will be your God, I will bring you and I will give this land to you. If you've looked for those things other places, you can stop. Because they're all found in this God of ours. And so if you have not yet in your life, now is the time to cry out to Him and say, God, I need you right now. And I need you tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that and the day after that. And He hears and He answers and He rescues and He redeems. He always has and He always Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity we have to gather in this place today and to worship you through song, through taking of your elements, through, through giving, and through your word. And God, and as we, we see from your word today, God, you are a God who is, is, is after us with everything you have, a God who loves us, a God of great mercy and compassion. You're not quite worried where we've been. You're worried more about where we're going. And God, we have soiled ourselves. We have, we have sinned and we have fallen short many a time, and yet you are quick to forgive. And you are slow to get angry. And your love is never ending. And God, we're so grateful that it is. So God, we, we, we put our faith and our hope and our trust in you today and every day. 
knowing that you are the only one who can be trusted with our heart. God, we thank you for your son Jesus who came and lived a sinless and perfect life, offering himself as a sacrifice for our sins, becoming our Passover lamb, shedding his blood so that we might be redeemed and rescued by you. God, we pray for those who, who are running out of hope. God, we know that this time of the year, people who have lost loved ones or people who have gone through traumatic, it's hard sometimes for people. We ask that you would give them hope. God, we pray and hope that they would look to you for their hope because you are the only place where true hope is found. God, we, are thank, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you for your love for us. And we pray all this in the powerful and healing name of your son Jesus and all God's people said, amen. amen.